strong companies, lasting partnerships, powerful events. Welcome to the Experience Builders Podcast. Chris, you're a traveling man. I am. I am. I am home for a brief window, just in time for the next hurricane here in uh, Florida. Cleo. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the cologne I wear these days. But I am just. I'm attracting bad weather, man. But uh, yeah, in Orlando this week. Goodness. Well, uh, welcome back to Orlando. Uh, what's What's been going on Thanks. in your world? What's What are some of the victories you've had recently? Oh, it's listen, it's been I feel like I've been on the road for the for the last three or four weeks, but uh, it's great. I, you know, we were just talking at the break. Um, we've got a target of, of new hires. I, I want to say we've made seven new hires since June and our number one got to get box position. Uh, we just got an acceptance on that and that's going to be out in our our uh, our expanded Vegas facility. So super happy about that had another, this will be an interesting part of the conversation later, but then I also had an individual um, who worked for us about 15 years ago. He's been a traveling uh, lead man for um, a major player and just called and said, Hey, do you still have a production manager or supervisor position open? Because um, I said, you're, I said, for who you have a, for the right person we're hiring. He said, for the guy you're talking to on the phone. And I said, Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And I, you know, what was interesting? I, I said, are you just tired of the travel? And he said, it's not the travel so much. He goes, I'm just tired of every single city I fly into, right? Where he's managing a strange labor crew. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Almost every single job is just a mess. It hasn't been finished in fabrication. Um, the, this, the, the, the labor teams I have are not critical thinkers at problem solving it to to finishing the booth on the floor he said it's just miserable and i'm just done with that and i think that's you know that's indicative of the disruption that probably still applies right for our 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 builders and um it's a labor thing it's a materials thing it's a freight thing i mean it's it's all those things we know that still are disruptive but um you know what the gods have done is shaken out a really great guy who wants a home base with us so I think that's that's our second big victory. So, Is that not how yeah. it always happens for you, Chris? They don't just fall in your lap, fall in your lap like that. You know, I, it's funny. Michael and I had this 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 conversation prepping last week, and I said it's just dumb luck, right? <laughs> a lot of times, our best hires, and, and he's like, you know, is it really luck or? You know, I'd like to think that, um, you know, we've done a good job putting our brand out there and it's a reputation that is worthy of picking up the phone and calling if you're looking to make a change. So anyway, um, but yeah, if I look at the last seven, now eight hires, I'd say five or six, there was no, you know, recruiting campaign or Indeed, Magic Indeed ad, or it really was just the stars aligning. So um, I think the serendipity of it is just keep moving forward and keep doing the next right thing and doors yeah. do open. So, well, we're excited for you. And as you're obviously hiring and in full swing and building back in full swing, we've got a, a great person on to talk about hiring who knows a thing or two about it. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Chris, let's, let's let you do the introduction for Michael. You guys go back a little bit. What, what do you have to share with us about Michael? We, we do. I, well, I can tell you. Um, uh oh. No, <laughs> seriously. Michael and I met serving on the board of the EDPA 
And, you know, I'd been on it for a couple of years and was kind of a passive participant on the regular board. Um, this, you know, this new guy from Boston, it came in, he had great ideas. There was a, there was kind of a what work session uh, with about, you know, two dozen, uh, you know, business leaders at an EDPA uh, annual conference. And I just loved everything Michael said. And I was running a small table and running a whiteboard for people. And we presented our findings and Michael came up and he goes, God, I just agree with everything you're saying. And I'm going, man, I like this guy. Not just because he agreed with me. I just, Michael's got great energy. Um, Hill and Partners is a, is a wonderful brand. Um, they really are uh, an agency, not a Johnny Come Lately agency, but they've always led with strategic and creative. Um, Michael's a great leader. They have a great culture, um, all kinds of things to emulate. So um, as you know, Khalil, you're constantly trying to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. <clears throat> In the absence of any of them being available, I started hanging, no, my, so Michael fits that mold and i um, <laughs> grateful to have him on EPA. He's become a great friend. We don't, as he said earlier at the break, we, it's not like we're doing a lot of work together. He knows we're available if he needs us. But another great thing I admire, he's fiercely loyal to the vendors that he has and that help bring him to where he's at and um, totally respect that. But as a leader in the workforce development effort uh, nationally for our association, um, he's also a great guy to talk to as an owner struggling with all of the, the, the rehiring and training and, and onboarding issues. So I thought he just was a perfect candidate to get for this episode. So glad. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me. That's awfully kind. Yeah. Awfully kind. Yeah. Lasting partnerships, right? Michael. It's the us- Sambuca really that I'm drinking. Yeah. Drinking. There you go. <laughs> Michael, tell us a little bit about Hill and Partners. Tell us about how you got started in this space. You, you told me before we uh, started recording here that you were in the restaurant industry originally. Uh, how did you make that transition? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, so I'm, a, um, uh, I left college mid college. I'll, 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 I'll communicate it that way. <laughs> and, um, in that process, I ended up, um, moving into the working world and, 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 uh, found a position with TGI Fridays way, way back when, and then went through their process. Um, it was the first time I had really worked with a, you know, a national organization that had systems and processes. And I have to say that um, I had my own challenges with that because I was, uh, you know, kind of a free thinker. Mm. But that beginning led to this real interest in the restaurant business, this, this idea that at the end of each day, there was a scorecard on on how you went and how you did things. Um, and I really just had a natural sense to see the whole field in the restaurant business. I understood how everybody worked together. I think I had an interest my whole life in being around people and teams. And, um, and then I saw myself, um, enjoying leadership positions within those opportunities. Over a period of time, you in any industry, you get to a point where you look around and you could say, I could do this for the rest of my life and be successful, but what else do I want? And I had had a little inkling of this industry through a show management uh, opportunity I had with a friend. So I used to take my vacations as a general manager in the restaurant business, and I would go be a show manager for a show called Macworld Expo in the early days of Apple. And uh, so I'd fly to Boston. I got to see my family because I lived down in the Carolinas or I would fly out to San Francisco. 
And my favorite part, having been had an interest for architecture my whole life, was these show floors and this concept that these brands would show up in a place in a space and be dead on brand. And then my role was to help them make that go smoothly. You know, that was my role as a show manager was to solve problems for them while they did all their stuff. I'd be lying if I said I saw the whole landscape. It just felt good. It really just felt good. And then all of a sudden, an opportunity came to move back to Boston. I was working for that show management company. They took me on full time. But I still had this yearning or interest to be around clients and customers, you know, brands and the people they wanted to influence. And I just love that whole thing. So rolling fast forward a couple of years, I was I got an opportunity to go work for one of the bigger firms in our industry where they were called Exhibit Group Giltzburg. Um, they ultimately became part of the GES thing, which is a big, huge thing. And uh, my real pivotal moment was walking into one of these facilities, walking around and there's a design department, there's a graphic department, there are fabricators, there's a, you know, there's a shop, there's a warehouse. And I remember interviewing with the woman who would end up being my partner two years later, going out on her own. Um, and I remember saying to my wife, going home at night, we're saving for a house. And I said, look, I interviewed today at this company. I don't know if she's going to hire me, but I'm going to work in that building within 30 days. And my wife said, what? And I go, <laughs> all my people are there. Like, because that is one thing I've always been interested in, people that are passionate and interested in what they do. So I just as much, much fun talking to the guy that ran the warehouse as I did meeting the vice president of the organization. And uh, so I wasn't really a climber that way. I just wanted to be around amazing people doing great work. And man, did they do amazing work. So it's kind of a long story, but I was hooked before I really, really did any real work in this space, if that makes sense. You know, I was just hooked. And then every chance I got to, you know, go out to a show and help a customer and, you know, rely on so many skills I had learned in my life and transfer them. And by the way, the hospitality industry is a wonderful place to start, isn't it? Because you don't get to choose your customers in a restaurant. You know, when I was a head bartender, you don't get to choose those people that sit at the bar. And then if you're successful, you find common ground. You learn to be interested in them. Although I was a little self-interested too at the time, but um, really spectacular skills. So that was my beginning. Uh, that's how I got into this industry. I love it. Thanks for sharing that story. So interesting how many great people come out of the hospitality industry and how many lessons it teaches uh, for any trade that you go into after that. It's it's truly special and it gives you a different level of respect for the people that serve us in restaurants on a daily basis. So you've been in the industry for almost 30 years now, is that right? Yes. And so how did you get involved with the EDPA? And for listeners who maybe aren't aware of the EDPA, let's do a little plug for that as well. Yeah, so the Experiential Designers and Producers Association, uh, Chris and I have been members for quite some time. Um, Chris, longer than me. Um, I think the way that I got involved in the EDPA is that I finally got to a point which I was striving for where there was some space in my day-to-day -day life as an owner operator of a small business and I had had some experience um, with coaches 
the three years prior to joining the EDPA. And um, I, you know, I had evidence that if I got outside my own head and I had some outside influence, um, some really good stuff happens. And I had never, again, if you remember, I'm that guy sort of left college. So I never really got that whole idea of the circle of influence and being around people that are thinkers and dreamers and the, the idea of rising tide raises all boats. You know, I was hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And by the way, I have no, I have no talent as a student. So I'll go out there and I'll be talented elsewhere. You know, that, you know, I'll learn to be talented. So you fast forward and I'm, you know, I'm, I want to say I am 16 years into being, I am now the principal of my own organization. I bought out my partner who, you know, how can I get involved? And uh, so I went to my first EDPA access and uh, I was hooked like hours in. It was a replication of that same experience I told you I had nearly 18 years earlier. I was like listening to these people talk. I walked around. They were engaging. They were interested. And we were colleagues. They were in the profession that I was in. They were slaying the same dragons. Yet they were coming to this place head up talking about their experience when I had just been head down for 17 years, you know, just juggling and holding on to things. And I remember saying to my wife, I just ran into a whole bunch of my people <laughs> again. And, and then it was very, very quick for me. I got involved. I got my people there because I thought it really validated a career that can some, sometimes feel isolating because there's so much pre-planning for what we do. Started bringing my people there and then pretty quickly decided I was going to get more involved and ask to be, how do you get on the board? And if you want to be in an association and do a lot of work, just say, how do you get on the board? And they swarm. You know, it's like fresh meat, right? Exactly. So that's how it happened. And then within one year, I was asked to be on the executive committee. It was learned by doing. I was the same as Chris. I was a very passive contributor that first year because I was, you know, I don't mind failing in front of people but there was no handbook, right? So it was a lot like opening your own business, especially if you don't have an MBA, you know, you just, it's like, do the next thing. Yeah. And um, then gradually overnight, I started seeing patterns. And I will say something that I'd like to share that I think is really interesting. And this may just be me. I say I'm a slow learner, but there's this thing that you do professionally in life where you model other behavior, behavior and best practices and then I think there's a point at which you've done that and you either are having results, but, but you're not fulfilled enough. And then all of a sudden you go, you know what? I think I'm going to trust myself. And then you start offloading the things that you're trying or attempting to do that aren't true and genuine. And then, and then you hopefully, at least for me, you say the things that you stand for and that are important to you out loud. And the EDPA has been a great place for me to attempt to enroll other people in how I see business. And I don't see business the same way. And it's not right. You know, it is not the right way. It's just a way. And, um, and that's my goal in the EDPA is to just have a voice that is uniquely mine that I share and have people understand that um, we don't have to battle over being who we are, right? There's a lot of ways to be successful in business.
Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's great. That that's great. And it, it is an exceptional association that if you're in the industry and you're not a part of absolutely worth joining, uh, just to surround yourself with like-minded people that understand your challenges, understand the day-to-day grind that you're in, uh, and are able to offer you, you know, not just the camaraderie, um, uh, and the fellowship of being in the same industry, but also, uh, maybe some lessons that you can learn and tips and tricks to get out of certain situations that you might be in or to be more successful. Chris, do you feel just on the, on the idea of associations, there is a genome of misery loves company. Is that fair to say? Sure. But then running parallel to that is the lack of the idea that this is a place where misery needs to enjoy, you know, a sibling. Yeah, you and I and you and I are in that other lane, acknowledging it. But I think we both share the same idea about the invitation, right? So this that's a great point for those that are um, of our age. Right? <laughs> I, uh, if you've been in the industry for twenty five or thirty years, you remember how many of us came into the industry, and there was about five or six exhibit system manufacturers, and they all had either dedicated or, or fairly exclusive um, dealer representatives. And the the tribe or the community that you were part of was the brand of what that exhibit manufacturer is. That is no longer how our industry is, but. My point is we would go to the annual manufacturers meeting and and you'd see all your other dealers and you'd see your friends and you'd and you the energy you left with kept you going for three to four months. And it was amazing. So the market's completely flipped. I think the people that are belly to belly with the with the end user brands really are where the source of, of power in our industry emanates from if you're in front of the customer. And so you and yet we miss those gatherings where we get together with the, the broader community or tribe is interesting as I was listening to Michael talk about EDPA. And but so, by the way, that is what I believe associations fill that need for me. And I think for many. And, you know, when times are tough, it's nice to sit around and raise a glass and commiserate when times are great. It's nice to sit around and raise a grass, glass and celebrate. But what, what I heard Michael say he was doing in his early days, by the way, that was before the position we're all in now, where we're desperate to keep our people and are desperate to find new people. This man was was exposing people because he saw it. I'm going to bring my staff to the larger community to meet the tribe so they feel good about it as well. We validate their careers. There's a transference of energy as a, as a business owner and leader, it's validating your own career, right? And you're, and it's just, it is a wonderful thing to be a part of. And I don't care if it's, you know, I know the people, the members of, you know, IAEE and ESCA on the service contractor side feel the same way. We all get together in our, in our, in our communities. And um, so, yeah, it, it is, but it's not just, you know, a bunch of old guard people, the new people, the young people that we meet and we see the future leaders. And there's actually, a structured, organized group of future leaders. And we recognize, EDPA recognizes future leaders every year. Those people are so jazzed about being the next generation. They love pl- plugging into mentors and the the wisdom. I think the smart ones do. Um, they have great, fresh ideas. Um, and I guess, you know, that leads me to the purpose of this call 
and and was was a conversation Michael and I had last week. And the, the subject, if I can paraphrase, was if human capital is the key to small business prosperity, then what's the right formula entering this next year? And what I mean by formula, I mean for balancing vision and talent and culture and compensation and profitability, because that's the thing, right? That's now the journey, I think, whether you're a contributor to that or you're the architect like a Michael McMahon of that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's where we are today, finding ourselves in this disrupted state and yet um, just as optimistic as um, as the, the markets reopened again. It's just, but there's a lot of different things we're doing. So yeah. uh, love to, to talk more about how we're we're strengthening the bench as we're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned, we're looking for that formula of how to find good people, how to retain them, how to develop them. And man, it's a mighty formula, right? But before we get into that, let's, let's really define what the current status of the market is. You know, how, what is the climate for hiring right now? What is the climate inside of the events industry and what are you seeing across the board? Michael, I know you've got a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> is dire, is dire the right adjective? I'm looking for it. Well, you know, I'll just I'll just say, and we'll we'll probably leave the concept of the EDPA in the dust here because that's a backdrop to the real day to day problems that all of us as uh, business owners have. But I will say, my role as a vice president on the Experiential Designers and Producers Association is I currently hold the road the role of steward to the initiatives around future leader and future workforce. Okay, so. Um, and really, it's such a huge and complex issue. I want to use the, the word steward. I am not the committee chair of this thing. I'm a steward of the conversation that is literally is so complex. And we're going to talk about it today. Um, but there's no way, uh, I, there's just no way to simplify it. There is no way to just simply come up with best practices. But there are jewels. I mean, just in Chris and I's, you know, in our conversations on a day, well, I'll say we talk every other day, but some weeks um, <laughs> is that there are jewels in what we're doing and there are victories in um, in the way that we're processing uh, the people in the industry or the what we think the industry needs and how we're going to go about it. But um, this is like one of my favorite subjects right now. It's my career has come full circle to the point where people are the most important component of every single organization, unless you're a robotics company, although you need those people too. So um, what is the first question we're gonna have under this huge topic is what I was trying to push for. Well, by the way, Khalil, did it sound like he was running away from accountability a little? I'm not really (laughs) the guy in charge of it. But the, the truth is right, there's no quick, simple answer. And just to frame a couple of sound bites, Khalil, for our listeners, the average age of the worker on the trade show floor is 58 years old. I mean, just think about that and the need to repopulate. And that was before pandemic. So we lost a lot of early retirees that are really high level skilled tradesmen that are. So there's a gap there. The second challenge we have is we we have found out through experience and polls and surveys, the average uh, young person under 27, 28 years old, 95 percent of them have never heard of our industry as a real genuine opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the challenge is to tell our story and and, and, and about this wonderful uh, sector that that Michael and I are so passionate about to um, to fill, you know, to attract 
you know, both audience, we have a tremendous need on the show floor and then creative and project management and the front office jobs, it's still a huge, a huge need there. So what's the first question asked? Michael, you, you were about six or eight months ahead of me on how you were reopening and you chose to focus on hiring people, not from our industry, right? Not with those traditional skill sets. You had agency people, you had great hospitality, customer service skills people. You you had no hesitation to bring in good critical thinkers, but not from the industry. I, one question is, how's that working out eight months later? Uh, this is a great question. And it's situ the answer is situational, right? So um, where we were is in a position of not knowing, right? And I remember um, in our industry specifically, we had gone through about eight months of companies wanting to survive and pivoting their offering in order to, you know, create some sort of safe harbor for their organizations in a storm. And then we can talk about the, you know, the help that we got from our federal government, that sort of thing. But when I finally decided that I was going to see it, see what, what and where we were going, uh, because I'm really not an innovator, I, I believe that I have a very strong offering in the marketplace and I had decided after, I want to say after about seven or eight months of what we had gone through that I can see it. And, and the picture for me is our offering in the marketplace is still very valid. We're going to go into a time of volatility and the, I should say the concierge approach to dealing with customers is going to be in greater need than it was just 12 months ago because there are going to be so many unknowns. There are going to be so many people who are lost in their old, in their roles. There are going to be people doing things they've never done before because there was the great human capital shuffle. So uh, to Chris's point, I made a decision to ramp up and bring people back um, ahead of the curve because my business is not scalable without actual bodies and people that have aptitude in the roles that they're in. So we had to very quickly find out who's coming back. And the, and the sad news was one out of every two employees I had chose not to come back, not to come back to Hill and Partners, not to come back to this industry because it became an employee driven market and you could go out with a resume and sell, sell yourself and transform your life. Great volatile opportunity for people that wanted to transition in their careers, make changes. I have some great people used to work here who have some really great jobs and I'm happy for them. But what that left with us is this model and this idea of how our company must be to bounce back. And I had a choice and, and Chris and I, you know, we're of that age, you say, well, I can do what I did before, which I could take 10 years to build this thing. Or how do I decide to create the opportunity for us to recover at an accelerate, accelerated rate with what we know? So we, hired, so we looked for people, like-minded people. Our organization did a lot of work on values and core competencies. You know, our core values, um, they sort of guide us. So we decided to look for those people and look for um, people that embodied the things that were important to us but I did make one mistake. What's that? I had, I had developed the organization. My philosophy around my organization is I wanted to be able to bring myself into my company at any age 
and support the success of me at that point in my life. So that's how I look at my organization. And I, as you can imagine, I've gotten older as I'm doing it. But the initial, the initial idea around that, I was 34 years old. So at any time in my trajectory in life would have been, you know, 20, 22, 24, 26, 28, 30. It really topped out at the professional aptitude of around 30. But we built an organization on that. We built a very youthful organization, a lot of people with a lot of energy and interest, and that one commodity in their life that they don't even know, which is drive and expectation for their futures, right? So I subconsciously employed the same approach in the reboot and we made a big, you know, I made some errors because I was the gatekeeper and I hired some very young people. I hired five or six or seven people with transferable skills. And I, you know, when I say young, I should say people new to their business life, their business career. So in that particular case for me, it was chronologically youthful and one or two jobs experience and not a lot of experience. Well, if you imagine you're in the developmental phases of your career, the market's volatile and it's an employee market. You get the same sort of safe harbor in a storm approach to a career from a person who's new in their career as you might with someone who was displaced at 40 years old. Does that make sense? So I thought there was safety in hiring some young people that we could train. We had had great success. I had people that were here for 10, 15, 18 years. They were, I had legacy employees. So what happened is within five or six or seven months, when everybody started rehiring, those same people were still looking for that, for their best, for their best job. So we had a 55, 50% turnover rate with the first 10 hires. And if you can imagine as demand ramped up, that was quasi catastrophic because you can take the time frame those people were here. Although I don't really worship the dollar, you could put a price on what it costs and you and there was zero return from the effort. So huge shift. I want to say somewhere around August of 2021, I decided I'm going to change. We're going to change the way we do it. We're going to look for people, the right people. And the right people share our values, but not the idea of our values. They've actually experienced challenges within their professional career that had them come back on, wow, I want to work with people that are authentic. I want to work with people who have integrity. I want people who have a work ethic. I want people who are dependable. And in our case, the last um, value is I want people who are creative. But they need the wisdom to know that they didn't get it elsewhere, right? So we is, is that a kind way, Michael, of saying I was looking for slightly older people that had some of the professional maturity because they've been out in the workforce for a while? Well, I will say, no, well, I guess if we're going to do what the world does and sort of, you know, categorize, which I don't yeah. want to do because I have rule breakers. I have a young man who came right out of college as a referral and he embodies everything in our values and our core competencies. And he also has the humility to say, I have a lot to learn. And he's killing it. He's killing it. But if I would answer honestly, yes, the parameter was, I'm looking, we're looking for people that have 
been at a company long enough to have slayed some dragons or overcome no or objection or wait or any of those things that we've all experienced in a company. Um, and if they did it two times, I could actually ask them, you know, wow, you've been here three or four, you were there three or four years. Um, geez, you must have overcome a lot of stuff. And then the stories come out. And then if you're talking to five or six people and you get to that point because they're those type of people, someone stands out. And then there's and then and then what it is for the organization is if you're going to bring people outside the industry in with transferable skills, what we what we learned afterwards is oh my gosh, we don't have the time for them to just say we lo I love working here, I love the culture, I love the work, you know I'll probably be good at this in three years, you know what I mean that you and or I couldn't have my own people say it's going to take you five years to get this. There is no employee on, out there that does that thinks they're going to wait five years for anything, right? And I don't blame them for thinking that. And then if we look at the statistics that are out there now, the modern employee expects to be at their current place of work for some studies say two to five years, other studies say two to three years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, and I don't, there's nothing wrong with that because the right person, if everything works out, they're going to be the person who's with you for five, six, seven years. So um, it's it's a fascinating time and we've made all the mistakes. And I, I'm happy if you want a space, I can tell you some of the distinctions we've made and the changes we've made in the process of bringing those people along. I think it's fascinating. I mean, and I, by the way, I know Michael well enough to know. What he is saying right now is a hundred percent authentic, Michael McMahon. This isn't. Uh, this is not a company or an individual that that targets youth or, or or targets or ignores youth or just. He real. It really is the value, you know, the value, the shared values, and you're looking for the special sauce components. Whereas I think right now a lot of people are focused on specific trade skills or business skills. And it's, you know, it's a lot of those traditional skills. And, and um, you know, we had shared a, a study with that. I think it was USA that had it out earlier this year that, Cleo, I don't know if you saw this, but the average college graduate, right? Coming out of college with four-year degree, their expectations is they're going to make $130,000 a year in income. Their first 12 months out of college. Yeah. And, and you know, the, 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 the statistics show that engineer with a four-year degree or, or that science major is going to make about 55000 um, Put that up against the backdrop of the average medium household income in 2021 in the United States was $67,000. So you wonder why these smart, bright, young people coming into the workforce keep changing jobs quickly, or we see higher levels of anxiety, right? Because they're, they're, they are they have unrealistic expectations. And as Michael said, nobody wants to be told, boy, in five years, you're going to be awesome. Right. So, yeah. you know, th I, this is a huge paradigm shift. I think as we're all trying to find the solution for the, the, the talent gap right now that exists there, we know there's 10 million less workers that are yeah. for some reason, either retired or sitting on the sideline. And now we have this other component with um, young folks with, 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 with um, sort of distorted expectations how do you that's what we're all hiring into and so you know some of the questions we have would you hire mr or miss right now if you can't find the right person or do you do you just 
not you know, hire the person you know is probably not a long term. All right, term. so so I love that you just asked this question because while you were talking, I'm I'm thinking about you and your organization, and there is a portion of your organization um, because you you provide a variety of benefits for your customers, but there's a portion of your organization that that could activate 200 workers, right? And those right. workers may be they may be teetering on the low skilled to experience end of the destination fulfillment activity within our industry. And, you know, we could name all of the roles in that space, but there is a portion of the people that we talk to within this industry or we're talking about, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand your challenges with, you know, getting the next project manager or account manager or CAD person or, designer and those are all real things and you know there's a culture match involved and a and um how do you match their expectation for what they'd like to do for work in an employee driven market with the demands of this industry and what has worked in the past which is hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard and until we tell you you're talented you're going to work your butt off right you're going to work so but there is the other end of the industry that really desperately we can't generate willing enough willing people to just even step into roles to learn so you know i can talk about my organization which is you know my organization activates hundreds of hundreds of people hundreds and hundreds of people through the partnerships we we make with high value partners who are executing on behalf of portions of what the picture is that we're trying to create we cannot do it without those partners. So while I know we're going to talk about sort of these ideas of what has worked, and I'm, I'm glad to share what's worked here, what's not lost on me is the, is the fact that there simply aren't enough people right now to pull in and call into those high-value, career-oriented co contributors that are going to basically shape the future of this industry. So when Chris says... There's a long-winded answer, but when Chris, when you say, do you hold out for the person who shares your values and has some of or enough of your core competencies or at least transferable core competencies to bring, do you hold out or do you hire because the demand is there and you're, you're fighting for your survival in this space? The answer is yes. You know, you right? There's there's some people have to make the decision that I need to settle out of court for the coin toss that I might be able to move and inspire this person who isn't a fit right now to do the things that I need them to do and hope that they stay while I'm simultaneously doing my full court press on on literally voicing and imagining what's possible for this high value candidate that I totally believe will be, will find their own pursuit of happiness within this space, right? So yes, companies are doing both things. Um, I think the real challenge is we have to be disciplined about the investment we make in those two types of people, right? Because you cannot, you have to get a return from the investment in people in your business or it's not going to make it. So if the investment in your people doesn't give you a return in a short period of time, 
and they don't plan to stay anywhere for, for very long, small businesses like mine, and we're small businesses, Ralph, we can't foot the bill to train the next generation of workers. So, but we have to do our part, right? I mean, we are now training organizations, whether we like it or not. So my, and Chris hears me say this all the time, we all have to learn to do less better. We have to decide, I'm not gonna come up with a way to train um, or develop our future workforce. There's things that Chris knows about employing people and motivating people that I don't know. But what I need to do is say, you know what, I need to have a program within my organization that I finance through my annual budget to train, move, inspire, get experiences for these people that I have decided are the right people to join the organization. And then I have to decide how many of those people do I have the capacity to do that with? And that is, I don't know, a human capital supply chain problem, right? Because- I, Well, I mean, you you go from city to city with your client events, right? And, the, and your labor plan is really, I'm demanding quality by using the unemployables, right? I mean, that that is the case in a lot of markets, yeah. right? If you're in a city like Las Vegas or Orlando, right, where there is a high volume of event activity, you see the collective talent of the workforce rise because you can keep them busy, you know, 312 days a year or right. 293. But when you're in secondary markets or in remoter locations, right, and you're you know, and, and your labor plan is, hey, bring a friend to work day, right? And 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 um, yet your 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 brand side client is often there going, why is this taking so long? Or you know, I mean, anyway, that's a that's a in the in the event business, and I know most of our listeners get this, right? There's that's a thing you run up against um, depending on where you're at. And jurisdictionally, right, there's cities that we can, you know, if we sign a, a union contract and we have seven or eight, right, there's things you can do and there's things you can't do. Well, how come you could do this in Orlando, right? And by the way, then you're bringing in a bunch of new outsiders to your company who there's a whole learning curve of them understanding that. So, I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, Michael, is when you, you know, you've obviously got your training and your, your, your onboarding for anybody, but um, for new people, not from the industry, do you spend much time educating them on, on what I'll call industry training and not necessarily healing partners? Yes, yes. Training? Yeah. So it's interesting because we're going to revamp our. Um, so we have a thing here called H&P University that we started in 2011. And um, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, we you know, it's been a stumbling, bumbling sort of thing over the years, because just as you figure something out, it becomes in this day and age, it actually becomes obsolete. Not the principles of business and the way to interact with people. I think nothing's changed there. Right. It's technology. It's how people learn. It's how they absorb information that has changed so much. And usually a business that doesn't isn't in the training business. Right. We're in you know, we create spaces and places completely about our clients' brands. Nothing in our statement says, while we're training our people to do it, you know, we're, you know, but we, we've never been in the situation where we're flying. I mean, my company, we fly a pretty well-appointed, well-designed aircraft that we're rebuilding. You know what I mean? So, so, so the expectation with our customers is 
are you the same as you've always been? And that was the promise we wanted to deliver on post COVID. We have completely different people. So we had to do a, we had to come up with a strategy. You can almost think of sports. If you don't have the star player that can go one-on-one -on -one with their star player, you have to come up with a way to manage that experience on game day and be successful. I would say their star player is an experienced person who has a high expectation. That's a brand manager, a, a senior marketing manager, the CMO, you know, the sales director, you know, we serve clients and those clients, they have brands and expectations. If I don't give them the team that they can, that is an extension of their own team, which is what we promise our people become your people. If I don't give them that, then I'm in trouble. So how do I give it to them? I actually have to invest in more people and more touches in the transaction so they, they don't make their decision on a single interaction. And I have less. So if Chris and I work together, he's not going to make a mistake in front of a seasoned professional on any subject in our industry. And he also has earned the respect in, the in our industry to choose which information to focus on in that dialogue. That takes experience, which you cannot Google. And by the way, you cannot train it in 90 days. So our training program here, which is HMP University, we have decided to do less better. We have literally mapped out the first 90 days of employment with our people as if we were teaching them to be fry cooks in a restaurant. And, you know, it's, it's that simple. And we have reduced the, the activity that they have to execute or be able to execute at the end of 90 days to be a measurable contribution to the work we do. So instead of wanting to infuse them in a shorter period of time with all the insights and, in, and you know and understanding about the industry, which is impossible, right? We have decided, wow, we have to teach this person how to make a timeline. We have to teach them the impact of a calendar, of holidays, of demand, of PTO liability, of client of client holidays, of client industry. You have to teach them all those nuances of creating a timeline that, that is part of what you do when we say a time, you know, you need to make a three-month timeline. We need to teach them that the three-month timeline can be four and a half months if they see all the, the minefield, right? So, and at the end of 90 days, what we want to say is, you know, do they know how to ask, have they learned how to estimate projects? Have they learned the verbiage within our industry? Do they know what it means? Have we got them out to a show and who walked around with them? Because I believe in tribes. If you walk around with a salesperson, you get the salesperson's perspective. If you walk around with a salesperson, then a project manager, and then a designer in one day, you'll get a lot of information. Then we have to mine that information for what actually stuck, right? So you're, you're actually counting on your... Because one of the questions I was going to ask you, are you hiring a fixed cost, non-revenue generating manager to onboard these people with that training? Or are you using your critical people in the process, which, by the way, then makes them reduces their productivity level, right? Because they're now training and coaching. Yes. So and this is where, you know, this is where I always say I'm just a guy. So I am not on this phone call to say this is how it is. But this is what I believe. 
I believe, so I, I have an aversion to big business solutions for small business. So hiring at someone to create a training program for my organization, by, by the way, if I had the right person, in other words, again, if I found the right person who was gonna be a student of what we do and it was gonna be interested in what we do and then was going to create a plan that worked for where we are in this time in our industry and our economy, versus someone who loves to be a trainer and loves training programs, it, it, those things don't work. So I had to pull my people in and go, listen, the brain trust of this organization, the genome of Helen Partners exists in 13 people. You are the leadership team here. And by the way, we told them that when, when there was only 22. Now there's 36 and we're on our way to 45. You know, we, we're hiring. Um, and those people all activate hundreds of people. So these are sort of, they're practitioners, you know, designers, CAD people, but they're also project managers. They're also account managers. They're highly involved relationship managers that are in our sales, sales team. We had to tell them, there's no way to offload your collective wisdom about who we are to a, someone else, have them work with these new people, and then give you back a product that you'll be satisfied with. It won't happen. We don't have the time to do it. So we need to be training every single day. We need to be thinking about what people's our experiences are. What we did do in the organization is I went around and said, you're on the admin team. You're on the admin team. You're on the admin team. Then we pulled the administration team in and they all have different roles and said, you are responsible for the genome of this organization. If everyone disappears, there's going to have to be some sort of document that tells me how we do this, how we've done it, and everything needs to be up to date. So we're in the constant process of updating um, job descriptions and that sort of stuff. Um, I'm free, as you know, Chris, I'm not, I do everything and nothing here. My job is literally to walk around and literally raise the game as best I can with everybody. I, I know I want your job. I've wanted your job for years. That's that's right. exactly Khalil. You're so what I'm trying. I want one of the things I want to get to is um, Michael's mentioned a couple times. It's an employee's market, right? So we're all feeling the need to. There's this this runaway compensation train. You know, as talent is short, and it's and you know, I don't think we figured it out, Khalil. But you're a you're a guy that's coaching small businesses on a lot of different, you know, verticals, what's your, how do you, how do you stop that? How do you stop the runaway compensation? Um, or, or can you, when, when the talent pool is this thin? I think you guys have alluded to a lot of these things already, but I think that hiring for values is always key, not hiring for skills. Uh, once you start hiring for skills, you kind of lose that game uh, of being able to, keep people at certain compensation levels or at reasonable compensation levels. I think when you hire for values, you can find the right people that want to be there for the right reasons. And you're able to make an impact in them by investing in them as people. You're able to care about who they are, about their family, about them growing in their career, about getting them to the next steps in their career. And when you can do that at a, at a real level by having these you know, development practices inside of your company, investing in your culture, people see that. They see that their work is more than just a paycheck. They see it as meaningful. They seeing uh, their work is making a difference. And when you're able to give them challenging work, right? For people that are coming from a, maybe a hospitality industry where 
yeah, it's challenging, but not in the sense of problem solving that is helping me grow my skills. It's more so just dealing with customers that are angry or whatever it is. If you can bring people from that industry and show them, hey, here's a really difficult problem that's going to require some critical thinking. That's whenever I think mm -hmm. you're able to show challenging and meaningful work to somebody that makes them want to come to work and solve the challenge for a client. And when they can see that, you know, not just in a five minute span, I was able to solve a problem, but over the course of weeks, we had this long timeline and we were able to achieve this goal and the client's thrilled. There's something about that that keeps them around. Um, and yes, you probably will have to pay them more. That's part of it, but you're not going to be going down this, you know, rabbit race to the you know bottom of let's just pay whatever they want because if they're only in it for the money that's not part of your values yeah. and so you shouldn't be hiring them well i had a i i had a follow-up question and i think you answered it because it was really is there some sort of culture model that neutralizes the overcompensating and i think you just hit it i like the hiring for values and the yeah. lifestyle quality enhancements and and family time and offering challenging and meaningful work. And I've heard that from a lot of the young people that we interviewed is they want to do work that matters, right? I, they can only get so excited about applying miles of Velcro yeah. to the backs of graphics, right? They, right, we've got to give them an opportunity to, um, but to our industry's advantage, Michael, we're, we do really visual stuff, right? We build cool stuff, right? It's, you get to see it. And that, I think it, that helps make the work mean more when you, Hey man, I you know in nine days we built this shopping mall, you know out of recyclable stuff, and then we get to tear it all down and reuse some of it and do it again, and something looks completely different. And that's there is a there's a fun factor for that, although you know it's hard work. And there's no question about that. Yeah, I you know I have one thing to add about this whole idea of the the cost of the cost of hiring. Um, I mean, if we you know if we're good people. If there's 14, 16 percent inflation in two years and that's a real thing and we're all willing to say that that's a, you know, you print 10 trillion dollars, there's going to be inflation. So being the person in the mix that just simply says, I can't do this to my customers, um, you only have a few moments in time to do this to customers and it is not two years from now. So if that makes sense, in other words, if we don't, if you don't value your offering based on the value of the dollar today and you're basing it on the value, I would just say to someone, well, if you're going to do that, if you're going and, and this isn't me being saying that it will, there'll be impact because if you don't sell on value and you just sell on price and you just raised your price and no one knows what value you provide then they can go like, why'd you raise your price on me, right? So it is true that in a moment of increasing prices, you got to be on your game, right? You really have to be on your game. But if we're about, if we're about engaging high-performing people in the, in the work that we do, how good are we going to have it if they're coming to work each day and all the people in their circle have seen some relief in this inflationary environment. So this, and this is what I would say to other business owners, which is, you know, I, I can imagine someone saying, well, that's easy for you to say. How do you know it's easy for me to say? It's not easy. If you're gonna spend $50,000 on an employee to join your team, because that's the value proposition that you believe, and the market's saying that's 65, 
today, you're spending $15,000. You're already going to spend 50 grand. So it isn't an extra $65,000. That is so obvious to say to business owners, but the emotional challenge for someone who's been an employer is the dollar figure. And then if you take seasoned people, I have the conversation here. You know, you know how much I made when I came on and I was, you know, I was a project <laughs> manager. And then when I have to go, I have to go like, okay, what was the value of dollar in 2005? Right. And I walked four miles to school. I ate dirt for lunch and I was grateful. Yeah. So part of that job I have, I walk around. I'm the owner of the company. I'm not saying give people whatever they want, but don't live in a place in a space where what you want to accomplish is impossible. And also understand that we are not, we are not huge employers. So that project manager that you bring on and you pay them 20% more than you thought the job was worth, I'll just give the math. If it's $60,000, it's entry level, I don't know what it is. And then 20% more is whatever, 20 for $72,000. If they bag out of your organization in 90 days, you spend 15. Yeah. So I was going to ask you that. So what's the real risk, Michael? Is it, is it half the time? Cause you know, is it really six months? Is it three? I mean, what's the, do you have a, do you have an internal, you know, sort of an unofficial litmus test of I'll know by. Yeah, I definitely know that. And you and I know. So the thing we love about this industry is the diverse talent so many different people who do different things. That's why people love this industry because if I'm a guy that likes to sit at my computer and work on CAD drawings, I get to have lunch with someone who was just in Brazil for two weeks, right? That's cool. I'm not sitting in, a, in a, an accounting pool with 20 different people working on the same spreadsheet. Not that that's bad, but it's a very rich environment. So when you say that, there is no way to say if it's six months, it's two months, it's whatever. It actually is human beings in our industry. It's a situational thing. But what I would say for me, my risk tolerance is I need depth of bench. I'm a conservative business owner. I need farther to fall. So if Khalil is on my team and he's a super, super high achiever, I love that guy. I wish he could do twice as much. I wish there were two of them. So my risk tolerance is very, very high if he decides to go do something else, right? But if I have him on my team and then I have four other people who in some way, shape or form could stack up to about 70% of Khalil, you know, 70 or 80% on their best day. If Khalil leaves me, I'll be okay. Right? Because if I, if I believe in a tribal approach and a discussion approach to all challenges, I can get enough smart people in the room. Is it less efficient? Yes. But is the risk tolerance for me as an owner, is the risk tolerance with my customers, it's been effectively lowered. So to that question, is it six months? I actually think it is depth of bench for the plan and the approach that you're taking to market. And this is where we're all in trouble because if your entire identity is, you need to triple the size of your business to make money, really tough place to be in if there's no human capital. However, if you're going to do less better and you have an upmarket offering, you have a very clear value proposition. And, and this is you, Chris, right now. This is exactly where you are. If you're an upmarket offering in the space that you play, 
you get to actually choose at what level of efficiency do I need to be and be still be true to myself and genuine to my brand and occur that way for my customers. And then that's what each of us needs to be striving for. So, you know, up here, we know some big players in it. They might need eight project managers right now in order to succeed. That's tough in this market. I'll take another one. I'd take two. I'd take three, but I need another one. You know what I mean? In my company. So I can be a little more patient. And by the way, if we're talking about what the, what the cost for that is in the marketplace, don't I have a little more latitude than if I had to do that with five or eight people? Suddenly, $15,000 with eight people is X amount of dollars. If there's a high attrition rate of 30 or 40%, I really got to say, wow, my risk is 100, you know, it's 100, 150 grand. And if I'm chasing profitability, that's far out, right? Um, wow, there's a, I'm just thinking of another question that I think we should cover. But anyway, if that's resonating with you guys, that's how I see it. I see it as a small business owner. Do you see the talent pool problem easing next year or staying the same? All right. So if you're just saying the global talent pool is not going uh, to... I'd, let's call it the North American because I know there's a <laughs> lot of different economies. So, yeah, but I, you know, and, and again, that's we've got an election that's, um, you know, as of tomorrow, we're that we're all going to have a different outlook on on uh, on the political climate. But um, the economy is, um, you know, inflation is real. It doesn't go away overnight. To your point, you don't push six, eight, ten trillion dollars into the market. And not and not pay for that. That doesn't resolve itself overnight. So, but do you do you see? Um, I don't think there's going to be an enormous amount of new talent entering the market. But is the is the I don't know. Maybe some of the people on the sidelines are going to have to come back because it's back to a two income world, no question about it. But do you do you just see the competitive nature in the in the in the and the in the, the frenetic pace of trying to fill positions easing? in the next 12 All right, months. So I'm going to try to do my best non-Michael McMahon answer to this because I can be so verbose. So these are, the, I'll give you four or five things that I think are a factor before I answer it. One is I never wanted my business to be political or politicized in any way, shape or form, but we are in a time in our, in our country and globally. So we're experiencing fundamental transformation, right? And fundamental transformation Costed, costs a lot of money, right? And in the process of fundamental transformation, I'll just pick one sector, energy. When you want to fundamentally trans, trans, uh, change, transform energy use on the planet, you have, to, you have to raise the price of the cheaper energy, which we all know, right? So if that's the case, then right now our neighbors, my neighbors, are gonna experience one of the most expensive winters they've ever experienced in the United States. Um, yeah. So you just mentioned double income households. So there's gonna be a man, mad scramble for a better job, more money whatsoever. The so there's another factor. The only way to bring down inflation is to lower unemployment. The only way to lower unemployment is to either fill the jobs, which we don't have people for, or decrease the number of jobs in the marketplace, right? So the only way you decrease the number of jobs in the marketplace 
is you plan for a quasi volatile recessionary period and all the big companies on the planet lay off people and try to do, they actually try to do the same with less, right? And then the chain reaction will happen. This has happened before, but this is a very unique time. Well, and it's happening, some of the sectors are happening now, right? That we're starting to see some of that now. Right, so if that happens, big business will slow the economy and small business will be in that same space that I just told you about, which is, or that I shared that I think we all agree on. The up market offering in a down market, conservative business, you know, not a lot of debt and everything. You can, you literally, you have safe harbor in the storm because you get to work with what you have, right? Um, but if you're going somewhere and you've been ambitious after this big correction, and by the way, we had a huge, massive recovery, um, you could be very optimistic. But then the, I'll say one more thing. It's the last thing. I don't know how many of them are. We just completely exhausted our highest value employees for 14 months straight. We asked them to help us lift our organizations and we were loyal to them. We took care of them as best we could, but it took a toll. So a percentage of those people are gonna say, I don't know if this is worth, worth it. And whether the grass is truly green, because you know what, high achievers work hard anyway. So. They may go elsewhere and try to high achieve, be a high achiever without the craziness, or they might stay in this. But we can't, we can't take advantage of them. And when I say take advantage of them, I've been taken advantage by my employees. I hired people. You know what I mean? I mean, they're taking advantage of an opportunity that this company provides. And it's so when I say take advantage, I don't mean abuse. I literally mean take advantage of opportunity. So we took advantage and communicated with our best people. This is literally head down rock and roll time. You know, we're building back. This is how it is. And we were able to leverage that because they came from not having, right? They, the thing they never imagined was there was no job in this industry before. So now we're gonna go into 2023 and that is my biggest concern. That's my biggest concern is how do I keep my best people from the burnout and exhaustion. Yeah, what yeah. is the next thing I say to them? And this is my belief, and I'm just going to share this again. I'm a small business owner. I don't know what to do. I just know that you need to do the next thing. And I'm going to tell each one of them, I see what you've done. I appreciate what you've done. What is it that you need from me or you believe you need from me for us to keep going? And I know that 8 out of 10 will be, I'm good. Because those are those people, I'm good. Because, by the way, just being interested in them is the thing that they want to hear. You, you're seeing me bust my ass, right? But there, it, it is fair for them to say at some point, there's no amount of money you can give me to do any more of this, right? And I wouldn't blame someone for saying that. So I think what we're going to have to do as small business owners is we're going to have to have a plan for Judy, a plan for Jim, you know, some sort of thing for Mark. And that is not a big business solution, right? If So if, if Judy has three kids and her husband's in the military and he's going away, we can't be telling her, well, you know what you signed up for, right? And then we have to be prepared to say to Mark, you're not Judy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what do you, wait, wait, what's that? And I've always had to do some of that, but I th think we're gonna have to do more of that. By the way, while we bring new people in the industry, 
and we want to say to them, don't look at this. This isn't how it is. You know, we, you know, you, cause you don't have the same latitude as this person who's been with me for 10 years and we've slayed dragons together. So it is super complex. I'm sorry if I make it more complex, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in a volatile, volatile marketplace, even with human capital, because people are going to want to go somewhere where they're seen, appreciated, they see opportunity. I think you buried the headline 42 minutes in, right? And here it is. We just completely exhausted our most high value employees over the past 14 months. That is, the, for the listeners are going, absolutely true. And yes, the fear moving forward is um, that, by the way, you weren't Michael McMahon. You were channeling Art Laffeter, the economist, and Paul McGinnis, I think, as you're answering, you know, the American Paul McGinnis version. Um, so, and I had this, this is a good follow-up question. I had a list. Are you seeing, I'm going to call it PRSD, pandemic-related stress disorder, in your workforce, in those high-value people? Maybe it's, and when I, when I, what I mean by that, Michael, is it, maybe it's not in those people, but it's a lack of focus, a lack of ambition. Uh, uh, they're more sensitive about things. There's a, a demand and an ask for more flexibility even in ways our industry just can't be flexible. So are you seeing that as, as an out, as, as a sort of the residue of the two years? So I love that you asked me this question because I believe I have a perspective on the lag. So we are brand, we serve brands. We in the last couple months have taken brands to a location around the country. And actually, we actually have two people in uh, Frankfurt today. Um, and we have talked to customers who just took their first trip. So the answer for those people. Since the pandemic. Yeah, since the pandemic, which is a super, that's a significant lag, right? That's unbelievable. So to them, the fog, the disorder, whatever the acronym is, they're in it. For our people in our industry, the people on my team, it's gone. It's been gone for about three or four months. We are back to exactly where we want to be. And even as we face some, you know, the blips per se. So um, actually, this is funny, Khalil, because we were talking before this started about um, sort of our, you know, children and catching things. We are in this new experience of people that have been isolated. Now their children, everybody's interacting. And there are these things that people are catching that are non COVID related, right? But they are, they're stopping households, right? And because, because, because the genome's working on like, oh, how do we get back in this thing where we're, you know, where we're banging up against stuff that's trying to attack our bodies a little more regularly. So even with that, my team, their children, they've already been in that for a few months and everything. And the way they're responding to it is, this is just going to have to be how it is. We've got work to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that because don't we learn from the people around us how we should behave? And in our industry, in my company, people are showing up just the way they always have. I mean, we are on brand. It's awesome. But I do know in certain verticals that we work in and with certain brands that we um, we work with, there's a significant lag. And most of it is like medical device. You know, it's in the areas of, of companies that are in medicine. 
And I'll say one other thing that was a, a, a benchmark today, Lauren, who you know on our team and Michael Vallone, they're at the their first client meeting that the client called in their facility, the first one in 32 months. The very first time that our people have gone to pitch and talk about a project with a customer in 32 months. So that's a long time. You know, that's a long time for people who are in the experiential economy and literally focused on face-to-face -face engagement. You know, that's just nuts. So we look at that as, well, all right, let's do more of those. Even though we know there's gonna be a lot of this, we're all comfortable with this. Um, but man, I don't want my relationship with you, Chris, going forward to be just this. I don't think our clients do. I'm a good, I'm a good hugger. Yeah. Right. So don't want to miss out on. So that. I have a tendency to go all over the place because I just feel like everything's connected. So I hope I answered the question. Khalil, makes sense for us. What's our, what's our, what are the highlights you're hearing as we're? Yeah, I mean, we're sitting here talking about good hiring, and it's not just our own practices; it's finding good hires and then the people development in this weird different time what what what's make sense of some of this for us what what, what did you hear it's worthy <laughs> so much it, and it is all connected you're right michael i think so, some big takeaways that i have from this conversation are that you need to do things right like good business practices always apply even whenever there's not a shortage of talent in the industry even when you're having to become a training organization, good business practices apply. You have to have empathy for your employees. That's how you're going to be a differentiator uh, as far as an employer. That's how you're going to truly find the right people and develop them into people that are going to be a, uh, a valuable resource for your company and for your clients. Um, you're going to have to increase prices and that's, that's just going to have to happen across the board. Your suppliers are not past, uh, all of your suppliers are increasing prices on you and you shouldn't have to pay for that. The customer should have to pay for it. So don't be the person that just eats the cost, continue to pass it on to your customers. That's probably going to mean you have to say no to some projects as well, uh, because it, you can't do it at that price. Um, and that's, yep. what's going to allow you to also pay your employees a little bit more. I love what you said, Michael, sometimes as business owners, we see this, the full salary price that someone's asking for. And we think like, I don't even know if this is going to work out. Like I can't pay that much money, but the reality is if you're giving it a, a nine day performance review to see if this needs to continue, you're only paying $90 of that salary. It's not the full, you know, $20,000 increase that you then more than you were expecting. It's really only 20,000 divided by 12, um, uh, times three, sorry for 90 days. And then, uh, I, I think, I think an, another really good point for the training organization as far as developing people is it, it's going to have to be a team effort. You're, everybody on the team is going to have to get involved. That's how it's going to be done well. That's how it's going to be role specific. And it, you, you've, you've got to look at your whole team and have that whole approach as a leader that, hey, we all are going to be a part of this effort together. And so much of being that leader is being able to tell that story, being able to cast that vision and get people along for the ride. Um, and if, if they're not along for the ride, then you probably don't want them there. If they're not willing to do those things then they're, they're not a fit for your values. Right. And that's why values matters whenever you're hiring people in general. So such a great conversation and probably something that we could continue talking about for two hours. I, I'd love to end 
with just a simple takeaway, Michael, that you would have for the the business owner that's out there that's dealing with this, you know, full frontal right now. They're right in the middle of it. What is something that they can actually go do right now? All right, I have two things that I like that I think they can just adjust in their framework, the way they view things. One is the amount of money that you pay someone is for future work. So we live in this world of budgets, right? So if you if you bring someone on your team and you just you just sort of um, gave a reflection on that, it's for the next twelve months, right? So there has to be an exchange for those services. So allow yourself to pause and let the future happen and trust your decision with that new person or that new employee, right? And then a six degrees of separation from that. Budgets are suppositions in advance of performance, right? So this, the weight of setting a budget for a future year is there's always this battle between the low risk tolerance. We'd like to do 5% better than last year or whatever, or the economy's crazy. And so we set these budgets, but they're still in advance of performance. So all I say to a business owner is understand that. And then you get to decide. What are you willing to risk to create the performance you want to have because it's not given? It literally is not given. Um, and that's the work we do. It's the fun work. Fantastic. Chris, is there anything, you know, you're in the middle of hiring. You've just hired a bunch of people on your team recently. Any recommendations that you have for people as they're trying to build back, grow their workforce, develop their workforce? What recommendations do you have? Yeah, my two takeaways uh, from what I've heard that I'm going to start using right away is I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize more on values hiring. We're going to talk more about that with the new people, because I think, um, you know, it was a young person that reminded me that, um, great culture is more than just free Panera, right? <laughs> you know, you, you've, you've got to figure out how to, uh, really walk the walk. I think the, we, we've, what I heard here woven in a couple of times is, is, um, is just communicating more with the team that you have. Let them know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that goes a long way. The second big thing I'm going to do is everybody here, all those um, high value people Michael talked about that were really taxing. Um, they all want the new person and, and to, to come on and, and know that they will be a help. So I need to get them more invested in helping onboard and, and train and get that those people understanding that I, this this isn't us abdicating training. It's me acknowledging the great team that we have. And that's our best exposing that, that person to daily habits and going out to show site with the field operators and, you know, a week in the warehouse with the wear ops team and, you know, shadowing project managers. Like there's just no faster way to onboard people than total immersion, deep end of the pool, you know, swimming. And uh, so I want to make sure my team and then reward them. You know, I, we've, we've got to figure out better ways to do, um, you know, camaraderie and fellowship stuff that shows them how appreciated they are for helping with that. So that's what I'm going to start next week. So uh, thank you all for that. This is great. I could, I could do this for hours because when I listen to you, it just, it sets off other, other thoughts. It's crazy. I've been told I'm like a rich piece of dessert, yeah. Michael. After, <laughs> after a, a few bites, you might, you might think differently.
<laughs> That's great. Well, I, I hope that listeners have enjoyed this con conversation as much as I have. Thank you both for being on, Michael. We're definitely going to have you back to talk more about how you're continuing to grow your company and uh, grow your people. So, Khalil, one last one last word. We we talked about EDPA in the beginning. Just a, a, a quick uh, shout out reminder: the EDPA Access Year End event is coming up. It is going to be uh, Tuesday, November 29th through. Uh, Thursday, December 1st. It's at the beautiful La Quintero Resort down in San Antonio, Texas. Great, great keynotes lined up. We've got record attendance, record sponsors. The best minds in the industry are going to be there. So if you haven't registered yet, come out and plug into a lot more of this. And I have Michael McMahon's credit card. So we'll make sure that you get a free adult beverage as soon as you arrive. Perfect. That's great. That should be a fun event. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. See you around. Appreciate it. See you on the next episode, guys. All right, thank you. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Experience Builders podcast. Check out our website in the show notes or visit crewxp.com to learn more.